You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I dial my home number and the answering machine picks up. I hear Kristen's joyful voice ask callers to leave us a message. Kristen, it's David, I say into the machine. Kristen, are you there? No one picks up. Kristen, can you hear me? Kristen, Kristen, can you hear me? I repeat, thinking she might be asleep. I'm calling. I'm with the Taliban. We're calling to try to negotiate. Kristen, are you there? I say, increasingly worried we will miss this opportunity. Kristen, Kristen. Abu Tayeb orders me to end the call. Fearing I won't be able to call again, I blurt out, I love you, and hang up. We sit in the car for roughly 15 minutes. Abu Tayeb and Badruddin are nervous that the calls are being traced. They fear our car will be targeted in a drone strike. I ask them to let me try one more time. I dial our home number. Again, the answering machine picks up. I hear a man's voice calling my name as I stand outside the front door. Kristen, Kristen, are you there? For a brief moment, I think some strange guy has broken into my apartment and is now pleading to be let out. Then I realize it's David. My mom has gone back to Maine for the week, and my brother and his wife are here for the long President's Day weekend and Valentine's Day. On Sunday, we go out to dinner and a movie, something I have not done in a long time. It's more apparent to me that I have become a captive as well. This experience is shifting from a crisis to a lifestyle. I rush to get the key in the door, stumble over the answering machine, and pick up just in time. David, David, I say breathlessly. Can you hear me? Yes, he replies. I love you, honey, I add. Can you get a pen and paper? I'm going to give you a number to call me back on, he says tensely, adding, do not trace the call. Do not let anyone trace the call. Do not let the government trace it. David Rode is the winner of two Pulitzer Prizes in journalism, the first in 1996 for uncovering the Srebrenica massacre in Bosnia for the Christian Science Monitor, and the second in 2009 as part of the New York Times team covering Afghanistan and Pakistan. He's currently a reporter for the New York Times. He's the author of Endgame, The Betrayal and Fall of Srebrenica. Kristen Mulvihill has been a fashion and photography editor at women's magazines, including Marie Claire Self. She was the photography director for Cosmopolitan magazine. Their new book together is A Rope and a Prayer, A Kidnapping from Two Sides. Thank you for joining me, Kristen Thanks. and David. This is such a remarkable story. You know, when I first told somebody, gave them kind of the outlines of what this was, they said, fiction, right? <laughs> you couldn't make this up. Well, actually, I wish it was fiction. <laughs> you know, one of the things that struck me from a, as I was just reading this book is that you guys, as both as writers, have a huge challenge to face because you're creating yourself as characters mm-hmm. in, in this book. And I'd like you to, and you also presumably were editing one another's work at the same time. So just from the, the prospect of writing this, mm-hmm. I'd like you each to talk about creating yourself as a character mm-hmm. and going back and saying, is that really me? David, why don't you start? It's very, it was very, very difficult for me to do because I don't, I mean, I've been a journalist for 20 years and I frankly don't feel very comfortable writing about myself. 
I don't want to be a character. I don't want to answer questions. You know, I want to ask questions. So I was really uncomfortable with this form. And this first, you know, parts of this appeared as a, a five-part series that ran in the New York Times. I honestly sat down with the executive editor of the New York Times and said, this is crazy. This series is too long. It shouldn't be five parts. And on top of that, you shouldn't be running it on the front page of the newspaper. And that's honestly how I felt. So it was difficult. And anyway, in the end, I just kind of told the truth. There's things I did that were mistakes, things that, you know, I did, which, you know, I think I handled better. But I just felt it was most important to sort of be intellectually honest. And, you know, whatever character I am, I guess, would, would come through. Mm-hmm. Kristen, yeah. I'd like you to talk about creating yourself. And also, mm-hmm. did you, as you read about David's parts about himself, yes. tell us how you felt. Did, were you meeting somebody you thought you knew? Yeah, I mean, I think we each sort of realized what the other went through in the process of writing. That was that was one of the benefits of writing it. I knew that he had, had felt badly for going to the interview, although I don't think he should blame himself for the kidnapping. So it was interesting to see in his writing kind of how much that, that played into it initially. I, I will say, you know, my mother always says to me that I've married Indiana Jones because he has that sort of professorial side. And I think the, um, and he had that sense of adventure you know, he's always sort of going off to Afghanistan to report and whatnot. And through the course of the story, you know, and through the escape, actually, it really sort of made me think, well, maybe I actually did marry Indiana Jones. I mean, kill me for saying that. And in terms of, you know, seeing myself as a character, I kept a journal throughout just for sanity's sake, not intending for it to be a book or anything like that. So my writing was very personal. Um, and then I kept records uh, of, of correspondences with government officials, with the newspaper, all of that. So one challenge was going through all the information and thinking about everything we'd done to try to help. And it was just so confusing living this experience. So how do you tell it? I wanted to tell it sort of as it was happening so people could get a sense of that urgency and confusion. But I also felt I didn't want to confuse people with too much information. So picking and choosing was important. And then in terms of the character, I used humor as a way to sort of survive this experience. And there are sort of some absurd moments in the narrative. There are moments where I sort of, I guess I'm kind of and I sort of make fun of some things. And I actually did that as I was living it. And I didn't quite know how that would translate to people if, if they would believe that I actually was like that or if it was after the fact. But um, it was actually a way I survived. So that's a large part of the character in the book, too. You know, what struck me <clears throat> that when as I finished this book that was so strange was that you guys were living very, very similar experiences. You are with people who were nobody knew what was going on. Nobody was telling the truth to either of you. You are being shuffled around to places where you didn't know what you were or who you were talking to or what the next day would bring. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought that was so interesting mm-hmm. that in the end, you guys really had a very similar experience. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it was, well, for both of us, it's actually Kristen's line, how do you, how do you uh, surrender but not give up? Mm-hmm. And, and it was, you know, also I think people are confronted with these situations all the time in their lives, and we hope that this book, people can identify with it. If people are diagnosed with really serious illnesses, they don't know what's going to happen next. They are confronted by their own mortality, and they don't really have any control over what's going to happen. And we both kind of face that mm-hmm. and, you know, I think sort of found that, the human mind kind of goes in this survival mode and you just kind of soldier on 
assume things are going to somehow work out, even when the evidence doesn't look very good. We're uh, anyway. I think many people go through, you know, ordeals like this, um, and don't get as much attention actually. Mm-hmm. That's true. <laughs> um, I think we're each sort of dealing with foreign experiences. <laughs> you know, he was literally in a foreign country, and then I was sort of thrust into a whole new world. FBI agents, private security contractors, um, even, you know, dealing with editors at the newspaper. I dealt with editors at the magazine where I was working. This was sort of a whole kind of world with a very international focus, you know, politically charged. Every decision was sort of life and death. It, it was a contrast to my life at a woman's magazine, to be honest. <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned this earlier, and I think that's one of the things that you handle very well in the book as a character and, and as a writer in terms of the kind of absurd situations mm-hmm. you find yourself mm-hmm. in. Yeah. One second, you know, you're you're t- dealing with a fussy celebrity. Then yes. you have to go in the and go out to a car that's parked on the street <laughs> right. and right. look at some video on a laptop. Yeah, that's exactly. It's really kind of crazy. And I, I, mm-hmm. could you talk about how that penetrated, have you mm-hmm. recovered from that? Do you still, seems like that kind of yeah. experience must penetrate your life and make you feel, well, am I going to, when I step through this door, what's yes. going to be there? Yeah, and, and what's going to be next after And same this. with David, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's, you know, in a weird way, um, I've spent my life creating images, and we had video communications coming at us from his captors. So it was interesting to sort of apply, you know, that lens or, or way of looking at things in terms of this case, you know, looking at how they photographed them, camera angles, things like that, and trying to find the trickery in the communications. And then in terms of having gone through this sort of tremendous kind of surreal experience, it's kind of difficult to know sort of what the next step is. You know, I I would love to continue to create images or I would love to write maybe something lighter. (laughs) But it it is sort of, you know, knowing the next step is, is kind of tricky. How do you go back to that sort of innocence in a way? You know, David, one of the things that struck me about you in this book, that you treat yourself fairly harshly, I think. You're, you're, you do not give yourself an easy time, and you immediately and honorably take a lot of responsibility for things that I think are largely beyond your, you know, your ability to control. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's very kind of you to say that. I am, um, I don't know. I mean, I think I, I made a mistake in going to this interview. I did sort of try to research it. This, you know, Taliban commander had done interviews with a couple other foreign journalists. Um, and they didn't, you know, one of them told me they didn't think anything would happen, but I, it's a very dangerous situation. I'm elated that three of us survive, but there was a chance that, you know, three of us wouldn't survive. Nothing, I, you know, frankly, is more serious than that. So I don't know, maybe I, I uh, was too, too harsh in the book, but it was, you know, the stakes were very, very high throughout the captivity. You know, the, one of the things that you guys both, that helped you guys both get through are your families, mm-hmm. and you, David, have a very complicated family, and Kristen. So I, so and this is uh, even more complicated by the fact that you were still complete newlyweds yeah, when this newlyweds. happened. So talk about that kind of, you know, melding of families, yeah. kind of in a crisis situation. Yeah. Um, I and Kristen can talk about it more. My, my simple reaction is that what really amazed me was my. Parents um, and my family in general had the strength to to step back. Mm-hmm. They decided very early on. They said, you know, Kristen, you are David's new wife, mm-hmm. um, and we trust you to make all the decisions in this case. And mm-hmm. these are really serious decisions. You know, do you want 
um, a military raid, if possible, to, to try to get him. How should, you know, do you respond to these demands? And sometimes in a crisis situation, it's harder to kind of let go mm-hmm. and hand over responsibility to somebody else than to kind of hang on tight and, and try to control things. So it took tremendous strength mm-hmm. for my parents and my family to do that, and mm-hmm. I'm incredibly grateful to them. Yeah. And, and I actually worked very closely with David's oldest brother, Lee. Um, Lee had sort of been the point person when David was taken in Bosnia. So he had, he had gone through this once. He was the first person to find out about this kidnapping and contacted me. And I remember when he contacted me, I was so thankful he was just so upfront and honest and didn't hide details from me. And I also remember him saying he didn't want to go through this alone. <laughs> so <laughs> fortunately, we both agreed sort of on how things should be handled. Lee took on the role of actively updating the rest of David's family. And that kind of freed me up to be able to, you know, be going to visits to the paper. We also did trips together to D.C. He spent a fair amount of time in New York with me and my mother (laughs) in our apartment. So it was really a crash course in, in the families getting to know each other. And fortunately, I will say that everybody, you know, managed to get along. And um, my mother-in-law, you know, I have to give her credit. I'm, I'm sure it was really hard to sort of step back and let this new wife, you know, kind of take control a bit. And uh, I, I think it's a testament to her strength. That, that is the one sort of one of the positive things from this experience. We sort of think of it as one family now as our family rather than, you know, yours and mine. You know, David... You've been you've spent a lot of time in this part of the world. I mean, you, this was not something that you had done on a whim. You'd spend a lot of time, and I think one of the things you do really well in this book. This is the best history book I've read about this region, I think, ever, because you have an incredible talent for summarizing what happens and working that into the narrative in a way that makes it really compelling so we can go back and say, oh, my God. I mean, from the get-go, our adventure in Afghanistan was followed a pattern that had been in place, you say, for centuries. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that. (laughs) I I often wondered whether it was, you know, those background sections would sort of you know, slow down the narrative and, and readers would think it was too much. So No, they, it's, they're riveting, actually. No, that's very kind. I mean, I, I uh, you know, this, this seven years I spent in Afghanistan were a journey for me as well. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, you know, learned more and more about the history and the culture and the tribal structure through the years. So I really thought that was important to have that kind of context. And, you know, also to explain that, you know, it's not just these kind of crazy Afghans and these crazy Pakistanis. There's reasons they they do these things. There's reason the Taliban, you know, had a resurgence. There's a reason, you know, Pakistan, uh, the military is sort of helping the Taliban now. And, um, you know, I'm thrilled that you say that, simply put. I really appreciate it. Well, one of the things that I thought was most interesting that comes out of this is, is you know, the position of Pakistan in, in all of this. So I'd like you to talk about your early days with these people because— from the get-go, they treated you very strangely. It's must. It's almost. It's quite surreal the way they would treat you. They go back and forth. They would lie to you. Talk about your just kind of immersion in the first few days and weeks with these with, with the people who you got to know, and also getting to know them, which was difficult, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, they treated me very well. I was, you know, never beaten. I was given bottled water. Um, They saw me as this very valuable prisoner. They called me the golden rooster. But as time went by, it was sort of more and more disturbing to see and understand this, I call it an alternate universe they lived in. 
Um, one of the most troubling um, people I met was this young suicide bomber who lived with us for several weeks. Um, you know, he had been told that this was a religious war against Islam, that American troops were um, forcibly converting Afghan Muslims to Christianity. Many of the Taliban believed that Afghan women were being forced to work as prostitutes on military bases. And what was so interesting to, with this young suicide bomber was I asked him, aren't you going to, you know, are you really ready to die? And he said, absolutely. And I said, will you miss, you know, your parents and your siblings? And, you know, he said, no, the relationship that matters most to me is my relationship with God. And when I would talk to him and sort of say I missed my wife and my family, he would see me as sort of not uh, devout enough and too caught up in the, the pleasures of this world. And they generally had this view of, of Westerners as sort of these hedonists who fear death. And, you know, he had also been told that all Christians want to live a thousand years and that a necktie is a secret symbol of Christianity. Well, it was it, and you mm -hmm. had a similar experience as yes. you were get, consulting these experts. You talk about yes. hiring these security firms uh -huh. and talking to the FBI. The FBI was <laughs> right. the, the, what you tell me about the FBI, and this is about as startling <laughs> as the Afghan history. So tell us about right. the FBI and international kidnappings. Um, they are the lead agency in any kidnapping of a U.S. citizen, whether it's at home or abroad. Uh, they very quickly swoop in and you know tell the family. How how to how this might play out? They encourage you to kind of move the case towards negotiations. Yet the FBI cannot negotiate. They can't you know they can't get funds. They can't release prisoners. So that's kind of confusing. And then we felt at times there was a one way flow of information. Really, the FBI is there to gather information in the hopes of prosecu prosecuting the crime in the future. And then they have their own sort of protocols where things have to clear secure security and whatnot. They can't declassify information another agency classifies. So that was very frustrating. Um, there were a couple of funny moments. In the original hours of the kidnapping, the first few days, the New York Times was getting calls from the captors, and they were emailing me updates about what they thought was going on, research about the kidnappers and whatnot. And the FBI actually, the agents in New York actually admitted to me, you know, could you please forward these emails on to us? Because by the time it clears our security and is, is declassified, it, it takes like 12 hours. So I was getting information before they were initially. But that said, you know, they're very good at sort of being quiet or playing a little bit naive at times, I think, to, to get more information and, and sort of gain your trust and whatnot. And, and the people working on our case, um, I was most thankful to the negotiation experts in terms terms of training me how to take phone calls and things like that. Pretty much everybody on that team had had been a hostage themselves or had someone close to them who had died in the attacks of 9-11 or had been, you know, held captive. So there really, there was a lot of heart to them as well. But there was definitely a, a side and agents that were a bit more bureaucratic and, and kept things close to the vest, and that was frustrating. You both were in 9-11. And I think that's mm -hmm. an interesting bond that the two of you shared. Mm -hmm. Did you did that come up as you were in your courtship? Um, you know, uh, yes. And Afghanistan was a sort of large uh, part, if you will, uh, um, obstacle, you might say, yeah. in our courtship yes. in yeah. that I, I, um, I, I lived um, overseas and was based in New Delhi from 2000. Well, I, I sorry, I was at the scene of 9-11, as you mm -hmm. said. I was went over to Afghanistan a, a few weeks after the 9-11 attacks covered the fall of the Taliban, and then moved to the region and lived in New Delhi. I was a South Asia Bureau co-chief from 2002 to 2005, came back to New mm -hmm. York in 2005. We met in 2006. Mm -hmm. 
and I was uh, working in the papers investigative unit, but kept going back to Afghanistan mm -hmm. and Pakistan. Um, editors would ask me to go from the foreign desk. I had longer investigative stories that I was doing. Mm -hmm. So um, actually, after we first met and had dinner, I went off to Afghanistan for about a month, well, a month or three weeks. Three, four weeks. And I literally, <laughs> and Kristen tells the story better yeah. than I do. He, he said he would call from Afghanistan. I was, I was like, sure you will, you know. It just seems so impractical and improbable. And he did. He called regularly that whole month. So when he came back, we went on our second date. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of 9-11, I lived very close to Ground Zero. I still do, actually. And uh, I was actually away. I was out of the city the day it happened. But my apartment fell within the red zone, so I was displaced for about three months after the attacks. And I, I came back to the city, but sort of stayed with friends and waited to move back in. And I only wanted to be back in that neighborhood again. There was a real sense of wanting to support the area. Um, and in terms of the kidnapping, I really felt I'd, I'd made mistakes during 9-11. I'd, I'd been stressed out. I had forgotten to eat and sleep. So I, I learned quickly to take care of myself this time around. And I think having experienced 9-11 as, as so many people did in, in New York and elsewhere, just the sense that things can be so awful and then improve over time, that was comforting to me throughout this experience too. You know, David, one of the things that strikes me about your, your time uh, with your kidnappers is how they, they treated you physically pretty well, but mentally, they were all over the map. It was like the, the stories you relate are positively surreal. One moment they're saying, we're all going to release you. And then in the very next sentence, we're going to kill Assad first. Talk yeah. about that kind of, uh, I, I, in a sense, I think that's almost psychological torture. It was, you know, you mentioned Assad, who's our driver. And um, it was difficult for me. It was, you know, to be honest, obviously, it was much more difficult for him. He was under tremendous pressure throughout this there had been a kidnapping in the, the previous year of an Italian journalist, and the first thing the Taliban had done was decapitate the driver and videotape it and release the videotape as a way to increase pressure and get their demands met. And so I've always felt like my Afghan colleagues, you know, faced a lot more stress than I did. It was up and down, and the real it was really the kidnapper himself who would sort of raise our hopes and sort of toy with us mm -hmm. and then essentially be lying constantly it was difficult to go through. The, the way it backfired on him was that it made it, I'm sorry, was that it made us hate him so much and made me in particular despise him so much, you know, it prompted us to try to escape. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, one of the things that I think is, is so interesting is the kind of communications that you uh, mm -hmm. established. Mm -hmm. You're Catholic, right? Yes, yes. You're somewhat a religious Unitarian. Mm -hmm. Agnostic, yes. Agnostic. My family's not that. Were. Well, I'm not that religious. Yeah. Were not that religious. But I think that's one of the things that I observed in this book is that you, as a character, became more and more spiritual and needed to reach to that place more just in order to survive as a human being. And I think that's a really interesting journey. Mm -hmm. And her expressions mm -hmm. of love mm -hmm. meant so much to you that I think they achieved the same kind of depth of feeling for you that the, her religion offered her. Mm. Well, she was in, uh, magical in that, you know, there were two phone calls when we actually talked to each other, and each time she sounded, you know, incredibly calm. And that gave me so much strength. You know, she sort of said, everything's going to be okay. And I, I, it was this amazing sort of resolve in her voice. 
Um, and then there was one letter. We each got to send one letter to, to the other person through the International Red Cross. And there was one line in the letter she wrote to me, you know, which basically said, you must be strong because I am strong. And, you know, yes, you know, her love, her support, her strength helped me, you know, just, just tremendously. Now, uh, for, for you on mm-hmm. your side, yep. while he's getting, while he has Atikala or yeah. Abute, <laughs> yeah. and, and they're Chinese the same names, person, yes. you have no idea who they are <laughs> even, yes, yeah. um, telling them all sorts of stories. Right. You, on the other mm-hmm. hand, mm-hmm. are getting all these stories. The FBI yes. will tell you one thing. Exactly. You have a, a yeah. security firm you've hired. Right. You have right. these other experts. You have yep. your friends in the government. They're yep. all telling you one thing. And yeah. most of them, I think that you guys got an equal, about an equal amount of truth from, from the people you were dealing true. with. That's very true. And trying to wade through information and misinformation. You know, we had reports through, I, I suppose, local informants on the ground for these security teams, you know, that David was being moved around to Afghanistan and whatnot. We compared the notes after he got out, and he'd never been in any of those places. So there were a lot of people coming forward with misinformation, some people wanting to be paid for information. And then there was competition, I would say, between you know the different entities involved in trying to solve our case at times, based on people's allegiances. You know, like if, if someone was a former FBI agent, they maybe had a different take than someone who'd been in the military or someone who'd been in the CIA. And then the newspaper was, was a bit more liberal than any of those institutions, so there are a lot of competing opinions. And, and David, the newspaper and the your captors' uh, perceptions of the newspaper and of the Americans and of everybody was so bizarre, as you say. It really is another <laughs> uh, another universe. They, they were afraid that if you got a letter, that particles in that letter might be used to track the drone, attract the drones. Yeah. They. Um, what was odd was uh, I remember at one point they were talking about the New York Times and they said. The New York Times is a supporter of secularism, you know, and we think, you know, we oppose secularism, and therefore mm-hmm. we are an enemy of the New York Times. And it, it sort of amazed me. I was like, are you, you know, this was all being translated. I was like, are they really using the word secularism? And it was mm-hmm. like, yes, they are. I was just amazed. They thought that uh, swine flu was retribution uh, against, you know, God's retribution against people who eat pork. Uh, you know, for observant Muslims, you're not supposed mm-hmm. to eat pork. Mm-hmm. They felt that every day they had me, they were delivering massive political blows to the American government. Um, and I said, you know, my case isn't even public. Frankly, people don't care. I went to the Taliban for an interview. A lot of people will see that as, you know, traitorous. And they, they just didn't seem to, to, to care. I mean, it was just this sort of alternate world that they lived in. And I would try to kind of reason with them and talk to them. And, and I think it did make difference with maybe some of the guards. You know, they sort of saw me over time as a human being. Um, but many of them know. They just saw me as a sort of dirty uh, non-believer. Um, as time went by, they got more and more angry that I wouldn't convert to Islam. And I had chores, and they didn't want me after a while to wash the dishes because they felt that if I touched the dishes, they would get these um, diseases that festered inside me because I was inherently unclean because I hadn't converted to mm-hmm. Islam. <laughs> now, uh you just mentioned something that's really critical to this whole experience for you guys, mm-hmm. which is the um, keeping this out of the public eye. Yeah. And because this is one of the critical things that kept you alive yeah. and kept you safe. And that's just so mm-hmm. amazing that mm-hmm. we didn't hear about that. So I'd like yeah. both of you to talk about that from, mm-hmm. from both your perspectives. Uh, mm-hmm. David, how much... 
did you, when you set off to do this interview, you expected an hour, it's going to wrap up your book, it's just going to be hunky-dory, everything's cool. Uh, um, yeah, and essentially everything goes wrong. I mean, I, I think not making it public was absolutely the right decision. Since I came home, I've talked with other former hostages, and there's a pretty clear pattern. If, if there's a government involved that sort of cares about um, its, you know, its international reputation, let's say, frankly, if someone's being held in Iran, it's good to go public. Palestinian Authority was very helpful getting a British journalist freed in Gaza who was kidnapped. But if you're dealing with small militant groups in you know, Pakistan, in Somalia, in North Africa, you know, publicity just raises their expectations about what they can get for the hostage. And so it was, it was definitely the right decision. And you know, these guys want to defy Western public opinion. So they're not going to be shamed into, into doing it. And then as a journalist, it was very hard for the New York Times to not report a story. This is what they do. And it's a rare thing. But, you know, I, I, all the time journalists don't put details in their stories that might endanger people. If there's a mob trial, they don't name the sort of mob informant. And, you know, journalists don't even name anonymous sources because they fear they might lose their jobs. So, you know, it's a rare thing, these kidnappings. It is a life or death situation, but I think it's the right thing to do. It should apply to any family um, of a kidnapped victim. It shouldn't just be done for journalists. So, and this is now the policy of the New York Times. If a contractor or an aid worker gets kidnapped and their family requests a blackout, you know, the Times will abide by that. Mm-hmm. And there was tremendous camaraderie among the press. You know, I mean, this wasn't a public case, but so many reporters knew about it. Um, and I think, you know, out of loyalty to David and, and out of respect for our family, they kept it quiet. Um, and uh, the Times, you know, helped the family maintain that. You know, we had David on Google Alert. Um, there were a couple bloggers trying to write about it and update his Wikipedia page, things like that. Um, and we were able to you know, either have someone from the Times or from the family contact people and sort of police it uh, to keep it out of, out of the press. We feared as a family that if it became public, we would give the Taliban a platform to try to negotiate with the government um, or just give them a PR opportunity, and we didn't know what they would do with that. You each met some really fascinating and, and in your <laughs> case, troubling people. Uh, David, tell us about Adi Kala. It, it, what an amazingly peculiar man <laughs> he is. And, and, mm-hmm. and also, let uh, ratchet back to and talk about the Haqqani. It, you weren't taken by the, quote, Taliban, per se. You weren't taken by any government. You were kind of taken by uh, what's not, what might be best be described as a family mob with mm-hmm. uh, deep exactly. ties to the Taliban. Yes. Exactly. The mm-hmm. Haqqanis are a very powerful family. One of the ironies about this is that the patriarch of the family, who's elderly now, and he wasn't involved in my kidnapping, as far as I know, was Jalaluddin Haqqani, and he was supported by the United States in the mm-hmm. 1980s. He fought the Soviets and this was a time when the United States backed and, and helped sort of foment Islamic fundamentalism. You know, and there was a um, Charlie Wilson, the movie Charlie Wilson's War, and the book Charlie Wilson's War was about him, a congressman who supported the anti-Soviet jihad. He met Jalaluddin Haqqani. He was a guest of the Haqqani family in the 80s and taken in, and he saw attacks against the Soviets. And he actually, um, Congressman Wilson, called Jalaluddin Haqqani goodness personified. Mm-hmm. 20, 30 years later... I'm the guest of the Haqqani's family, but I'm, I'm a kidnapped American. I've become, the Haqqani's in the United States have become enemies. The, the kidnapper himself, as you said, Atikula Abu Tayyab, used many different names. He did strike me as sort of a young capo in an organized crime family. The Haqqani's were involved very early um, in this kidnapping, and it seemed like he was kind of going to invite me to the interview 
and bring me to the Connies as a way to kind of increase his standing in this kind of organized crime operation. You know, again, he talked about that it was this pious religious movement and he was doing this all to defend the people of Afghanistan, but it was obvious to me it was all about sort of money and fame for him. And I, I really, you know, I, you know, I really did, did despise him in the end. And mm-hmm. you met a man named Michael Semple. I did. I met Michael Semple. I actually went through David's emails. I had the password to his account. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew that uh, he was going to talk to Michael if, if he ever made it to Pakistan. Um, and I'd heard about him from other reporters. Other reporters suggested I contact him, including a, a former hostage um, who had been a hostage of the Taliban. Uh, they said that he had he had played a, perhaps a key role in, in his release. He didn't quite know how. So I contacted Michael. Michael was a former EU official who had had, I guess, been uh, banned from Afghanistan by the Karzai government um, for trying to talk to the Taliban. He believed you could try to negotiate with them. He was really, he, he became an important confidant for me because he was really the only person that, that seemed to understand life on the ground in Afghanistan and Pakistan. He tried to help me, you know, get to Jalaluddin Haqqani through former aides and elders, you know, in the Taliban. I, I don't quite know what effect it had, but I really sort of valued his insight and, and also his humor. He was he was very decent throughout, very consistent in his manner. You know, there were a lot of volatile personalities and, and temperaments throughout, but he was always very consistent. And I knew that David respected his, you know, opinions on the region, so. You know, one of the things that strikes me mm-hmm. about your experience is, and you alluded to this earlier, this book is actually for a book that's about the most serious things in the entire world right yeah. now. It's also pretty funny. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, <it is. laughs> and, and it's funny. It's kind of dark humor. Yes. But yeah. it, but this the yeah. your the way your two worlds would collide. I mean mm-hmm. the 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 real housewives of New yes, Jersey. Yes, exactly. Uh, <laughs> to to one to you know talking to the FBI. Do you exactly. want to pull in a, a, a yeah. military raid to rescue your husband? Exactly. It yeah. must have just been really odd, and, and I can yeah. see why the humor was necessary. Yes, yes, it was very surreal, and just to sort of cope or process it all. You know, I mean, you had to be able to sort of step back and, and kind of look at things. At least I had to be. And, and actually, I think David did that as a journalist. He was able to step back a little bit from his situation and, and try to um, process it, try to think about what it meant. Um, and ultimately, we just wrote about it. But yeah, it was, it was um, very surreal. And one of the other sort of funny things that I joked about with David in terms of our world sort of crossing over, um, I felt that I'd scooped him to a, to a couple interviews, actually, with government <laughs> officials in both countries. So <laughs> Now, yeah. David... I'd like you to talk about um, your experience just in terms of being there and you had studied the history. You clearly knew it all. You spent a lot of time in the region and all of a sudden you find yourself immersed in this kind of like really weird little microcosm that is, I think, um, the hardest of the hardest core of, yeah. of the un, unreal, of the reality rejectors. A- and as you had the ability to view this through the lens of the external history that you already knew. Yeah, it was um, amazing because I had written about the tribal areas of Pakistan for years, um, had heard about other hostages being taken there and, and really pitied them and feared that ever happening to me. Tried to do this interview close to Kabul because I never thought the Taliban, I, I wouldn't, you know, I didn't think they could move me to Pakistan and I didn't do the interview in Pakistan because I was so concerned about this happening. And it happens, I'm brought there, and it's 
you know, it's even worse than I thought. It's this Taliban mini-state where there are Taliban police, Taliban road crews doing construction. People talk about, you know, education and, and winning sort of the population support. One of the darkest things was that I was actually held prisoner in a school that had been built by the Pakistani government to kind of educate women in the tribal areas, you know, in, in ways, just to educate them in ways to support themselves. And the Taliban had taken over the area, and a commander had made the school sort of, you know, part of his house. I was separately held in a, in, um, a health clinic that had been built in a separate place, and another commander had taken it over. And it was, you know, their beliefs, but also the importance of just basic security. Yes, education is the key, but if you can't have basic security, you can build all these schools and health clinics, and it's, it's not going to have any impact. So it was, it was very stark on how, you know, determined they were and how powerful they were on the ground. It's, it's also, this book is, a, I think, a, a, a searing uh, condemnation of American policy over the past 30 or 40 years in this, in this region. We have done everything wrong, and we've done it the same way wrong <laughs> multiple times. And it, it's, it's very interesting because you get to experience that from the absolutely best and worst simultaneously. It's the best perspective to understand how bad we, we, we failed, but also the worst to be there. We, we, I mean, the consistent theme is that we take, you know, we focus on the short term and mm-hmm. we do the expedient thing. So when we're trying to, you know, kill Soviet soldiers, sure, we back Osama bin Laden and, you know, hardline Islamic militants. When that sort of, you know, blows back against us, we back, and this is, you know, my, I talk about it quite a bit, but the Pakistani military. What's disturbing today is that, you know, I escaped from captivity 17 months ago, wrote about this in the paper a year ago. This Taliban mini-state continues to exist. Faisal Shahzad, the young man who tried to set off a truck bomb in Times Square, and luckily it, it didn't um, detonate, um, he was trained in the exact same place where I was held prisoner. And the um, Obama administration has repeatedly asked the Pakistani army to go into this area. It's called North Waziristan, and they simply have refused to do so. Yet we have, and you know, our answer to the problem is to throw money at it. We've given at least $9 billion in aid to the Pakistani military since 2001. And despite this sort of failure to really confront the Taliban, the Obama administration um, announced in October they were going to increase aid to the Pakistani military to $2 billion a year. So we just kind of... I don't know, continue down this, this, this course. Uh, many experts, and I agree, don't think the American surge in Afghanistan will work as long as the Taliban continue to have the safe haven in Pakistan where they can simply avoid American troops and just wait out the United States. Kristen, uh-huh. from, from your perspective, mm-hmm. uh, you're experiencing uh, the, the history of kidnappings. And, and yes. one of the things you got to, yeah. to do, was, was, and you alluded mm-hmm. to this a bit earlier, was to go to, to kidnapping school. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much, yes. So, so tell us about the curriculum for, for uh, kidnap hostage victims right. number 405. Uh, it's a crash course, intensive course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in the early hours, as I said, you know, the FBI swoops in. They train me how to take calls. Basically, you know, try to keep the captors or David on the phone as long as I could. Say that I'm praying for him, which I was. Try to try to 
humanize David, um, try to play along without committing to anything specifically, try to get them to commit to another time to call. That was pretty much the initial training. And then from there, advised, okay, the case over time may drag out. The longer the case drags out, if there are demands, the demands will come down. Um, everything was based on sort of a Colombian model, you know, South American kidnappings. And it didn't seem to apply in that part of the world, so that was frustrating. <laughs> so I didn't feel like some of what I was being told um, was applicable, you know. Yeah, I mean, it was really a crazy, you know, intensive course, um, but, but ultimately you kind of have to follow your gut, too. You know, it was hard to just sort of go by what they were telling you. You had to really think on the fly and, um, and just hope for the best. Well, that was what Marianne Pearl told you. Yes, follow your gut. She did tell me that. And, yeah, and that's something that's I think advice. you did very admirably well. Thanks. And uh, talk about the, the various factions you had to deal with. You had the FBI, the FBI. then the ACIS. Is that AISC. It was AISC? a security team. A security um, team. You know, former intelligence and military individuals uh, on that this team. This is a, like a private company, right? Yes they're, yes. they're kind of like a kidnap incorporated. Yes, and I had no <laughs> idea how to go about hiring. You know, the family had no idea how to hire a security team. There was Clayton consultants, which was the New York Times security team and their crisis management group. And then there was, oh my goodness, there was State Department, you know, um, I spoke to Richard Holbrook a fair amount. Mm -hmm. There was a newspaper which had their own sort of ideas about things. So it was really, uh, there was another team, the, the team Cobble, I refer to in the book, and, mm -hmm. and those were um, one Clayton consultant and one AISC person based in Afghanistan. And they would they would sit, you know, on a compound and, and basically wait for calls from the captors or wait for um, emissaries to come out with information about David. So there were a lot of people involved. And, and David, when they were making these phone calls, uh, Taliban, they're cheap, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Yes, they, um, you know, <laughs> they would basically, they would call collect when they were demanding, mm -hmm. you know, the, the initial demands were $25 million in ransom yep. and the release of 15 prisoners from Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Um, and they, you know, yet they wanted Kristen to pay for the phone call. Yeah. Adding insult to injury. <laughs> um, one of the really odd things, though, was that was I'm in the middle again. I'm in the, the isolated, the sort of tribal areas of Pakistan. They they like globalization is underway there, and they they do there is all this sort of influence of Western culture there. They watched a lot of these jihadi videos that celebrate suicide bombers, but they also you know I watched a DVD they had of the HBO series Band of Brothers. <laughs> I watched a Nicolas Cage movie, uh, Wind Talkers, about World War II in the Pacific. And, you know, they had American video games. Mm -hmm. There was a sort of role-playing game uh, where they were American commandos in the video game kind of hunting down Islamic militants. Mm -hmm. And my, uh, in the last house we were in, which was the nicest one, there was actually a computer, and they would play this game on their, you know, on the computer. Mm -hmm. You know, they knew about the case of the Somali pirates who kidnapped an American sea captain, but they didn't believe that uh, American snipers had shot dead the three pirates. Instead, they uh, thought the United States had secretly paid a $25 million mm -hmm. ransom. And so, you know, they absorb information from the outside world, but they sort of pick and choose the facts that fit their ideology. Um, so it was, it was extraordinary. That's one of the things I think that's so interesting, the, the portrait you, you paint uh, of these young men who are essentially... Uh, I, as you put it, deprived of this world, mm -hmm. that all, all anything that's good from this world is taken away from these young men, which yeah. leaves them only one recourse, which is mm -hmm. to become uh, these kind of hardcore suicide bombers. Mm -hmm. And what was amazing, I read about this actually, in a, I was given English language Pakistani newspapers. Mm -hmm. This world doesn't matter, as we talked about earlier with the suicide bomber, 
ties to family don't matter. There's a program in Saudi Arabia where they try to de-radicalize young men, and one of the things they've found is it's very important to have them live with their families again and reestablish those bonds, and it tends to kind of, you know, reprogram them in a sense to care about this world, and that a key part of kind of brainwashing and creating a suicide bomber is cutting those ties to family. And, and the program has been not, you know, 100% successful in Saudi Arabia, but it's, it's worked fairly well. And it's, it's sad because they are sort of cut off and alone. Well, one of the things I think that's interesting, too, is the, the way that uh, the cyber cafes, I mean, these people are, I have this very peculiar combination of being very aware of the, these, as I, the cyber cafes where they will meet and, mm-hmm. and use to send out information, yet, uh, yet they believe the wildest conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. They're very clever at using technology um, to, you know, for their own means. There were these young men, I don't, I'm not, you know, maybe teenagers in their 20s, and they would, you know, be known as computer whizzes among the Taliban. They would cut and edit these jihadi videos, burn them to DVDs, and then distribute them. And, you know, they would make suicide bombers just like sort of rock stars or sports stars in the West. And just like young people, you know, in the West, they're drawn to technology and gadgets. A lot of the jihadi videos are simply filmed on uh, cell phone cameras now. Really? So, yes, they... They don't reject technology. They don't live in caves. They actually adapt mm-hmm. it to their own uses very, very effectively. Mm-hmm. And William Gibson quote, the, the mm-hmm. street finds its own uses for things. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. uh, Kristen, uh-huh. one of the things I think this book does affect, there are two kind of, I think, big messages from mm-hmm. this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is, is David's history, what this powerful history of our right. not being, under, ha, ha, being a completely clueless as to the culture and doing mm-hmm. the same thing wrong again and again. It's mm-hmm. uh, the definition of insanity, as it were. Yeah, <laughs> actually, yeah. I, I would say, I mean, um, and I, sorry, but I would say that I think we have not taken the long vision and taken the long road of consistently supporting moderates that do exist in Afghanistan and Pakistan. In Pakistan, it's been easier to sort of support the army and think they create a stable society. Um, in Afghanistan, we've kind of used Afghans to defeat the Soviets and then walked away. I don't think the United States can sort of magically spread democracy around the world, but we could be much more consistent in trying to back, you know, local uh, human rights groups, uh, local political parties that are trying to develop. And, and that's, that's what would create stability over the long term. We've just been much more kind of helter-skelter and, and sort of, in the eyes of Afghans and Pakistanis, kind of cynical. We just kind of come in, do what works in the short term, do whatever, who, whoever we like, I'm sorry, help whoever we like in the short term, and then walk away. Well, it's more profitable, I think, for America to send our military out there and the military-industrial complex, as it were, profits than it is to send out real aid to, to build roads. And I think the roads are, I think, more, are more what are needed. It's, it's correct. I mean, I, you know, we're spending roughly now $100 billion a year on the American military presence, 10 to 20 percent of that on the reconstruction effort. I do think, though, I mean, this has dragged on for a long time. For the soldiers themselves, you know, I think it's, it's a tremendous burden. Um, the death rates are higher now for American soldiers than they've ever been since 2001. And I tend to be not a big believer in conspiracy theories. This has dragged on and become such a mess that I'm not sure it's anything anyone in the government wanted or industry wanted. It's really just turned into a, a real tragedy. 
Uh, Kristen, mm-hmm. from from your mm-hmm. perspective, the, mm-hmm. I think the other big lesson here is is the way that we deal with kidnappings, and I think this yes. is a very important theme of the book. Yes. And it's as much what you've left out, I think, yeah, exactly. as what you've said. So talk about, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. the, your decision to mm-hmm. leave stuff out, yes. what you, yeah. as much as you can or yeah. are willing, but and and also mm-hmm. just the way that we deal with kidnappings yeah. now and, and um, one of the difficult things is that there isn't coordination across governments. You know, um, some governments do pay. You know, supposedly the French have paid in the past. The Italians. There was a case of Korean Korean hostages just before David's, where supposedly a large sum of money was paid. Uh, yet our government doesn't negotiate, so that sends a very confusing message. Um, I don't think the kidnappers distinguish necessarily between governments. That was very frustrating. That's the other part of the question. <laughs> well, <laughs> answer that one first. Oh, what you left out. Talk what about I left out. Yes, let's see. I left out the answer. Um, um, yeah, we really felt it was important to sort of explain our experience, but leave out if we discussed offers and things like that, ransom in particular. We didn't want to say anything that could encourage future kidnappings. I even left out some of the names of senior government officials I met with in the U.S. We didn't want to give the sense that kidnapping any U.S. citizen, you'd have you know tremendous access, or in, in particular kidnapping a journalist, that the family would have tremendous access to individuals um, in our government and uh, in our case in the Pakistani government so we left out some of those identities you know David uh, as you were writing this I'd like you to talk about um, you had to uh, shift into a completely different kind of writing than you've ever done this is this is in the polar opposite of everything you'd ever written for the New York Times. Absolutely. <laughs> and, it, and I think that's one of the things that's interesting in this book. We sense that struggle in you mm-hmm. as a writer to, to be fair to those around you and also your struggle when you were there. So there's two conflicts going on in, to, you know, in your soul at the same time. Yeah, and I, I you know, it's... it's uh... You know, it's and it's hard to be fair when you're frankly like a victim of a crime. Mm-hmm. And it, it uh, um, I, I tried to make the book clear on some things. Um, you know, and and you know, I it's a very personal crime. Mm-hmm. It's a very cruel thing to do to a hostage victim's family. I mean, they essentially um, are are systematically trying to make the family feel that they hold the hostage's life in their hands. Mm-hmm. And if they could just come up with these millions of dollars in these yeah. prisoners, they could save the life of someone they love so much. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's an incredibly um, uh, cruel thing to do. And, and so, uh, you know, I, you're very nice to say that again. I'm, I'm, you know, I tried to be dispassionate, but um, seeing it up front and having my family affected this way um, you know, it definitely altered my view of things and, and did make me, you know, more outspoken, I think, about you know, these individuals, what they really like, and then the failures of U.S. policy in the mm-hmm. region. Also, too, I'd like you to talk just a little bit about your your spirituality, because I think you came out of this a much more spiritual, not necessarily religious, but a much more spiritual person than you went into it. Yeah, no, it's true. I, um, I mean, my experience as a reporter is I've seen um, religion lead people to do terrible things. Um, religion... In extremes, I think, I still believe, is a destructive force in this world, you know, and I had seen that in Bosnia, and here I was, religious extremists had kidnapped me now in Afghanistan. What I found over time was 
I, to get through my experience, I started sort of saying a set of prayers myself um, each day. It gave me something I could do, and I would silently repeat the prayers, and the guards didn't know it, but it, and it was something I could do that they couldn't take away from me. It gave me something I controlled, and it gave me something I could do every day. So I would say this little set of prayers a certain number of times. I would, you know, pray for Kristen, pray for my family, pray for my Afghan colleagues, pray, pray for, you know, um, our captivity to end, and it, it did center me, and it did calm me. I, I don't know, though, if that means that there's some great God in the sky who heard my prayers and reached down and answered my prayers, or whether, you know, prayer is a psychological trick that, you know, helps us, as I said earlier, helps us surrender but not give up. Mm-hmm. If a friend of mine was diagnosed with cancer tomorrow, I would tell them to, you know, consider trying to pray, that it might help them get through the experience. But I, I do remain, you know, and, and feel like sort of have to remain skeptical of organized religion based on what I saw there. Um, one of the saddest conversations was with a young boy in this, in this area, and I asked him what he wanted to be when he grew up. And his first um, answer was, I want to be a mujahideen, like a, a holy warrior. Mm-hmm. And then I said, okay, what's your, what's your second choice? What do you want to be when you grow up? And he said, I want to be a suicide bomber. Um, and I said, okay, look, there's peace in Afghanistan and Pakistan. You can be whatever you want. What's your third choice? And he said, I want to be a Muslim. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was very extreme. It's not the kind of Islam and the, you know, many, many Muslim friends I have that it's typical at all. But it was, you know, flat-out religious bigotry, and that's wrong, and that's, you know, continuing today in the tribal areas of Pakistan. You know, mm-hmm. Kristen, you mm-hmm. had to find, I think, your own—you already were—had yes. a religion, I but I think you had to find a kind of a diff, slightly different kind of spirituality yes. to stand up yeah. and steer your own course between the mm-hmm. government, the mm-hmm. private people, yep. even your family, David's friends, everybody. Yeah, exactly. I, I get the sense that you yeah. really made, mm-hmm. followed your own path through this, and I think that's what mm-hmm. got you through it, and yes. also David as well. Yes, that's very true. Um, and when I couldn't, you know, I, I said prayers throughout, when I couldn't find that sort of positivity within myself, um, it was really useful for me to revert to prayers that I learned in childhood. You know, it was like remembering a foreign language, kind of a, the St. Francis prayer. Um, I also used prayer as a way to feel connected to David. The St. Francis prayer was um, something that, w- that had been, um, it was a hymn at our wedding, actually. And I would say that, you know, every night, kind of, and look at our wedding picture, just as a way to feel connected to him. A- and as I, you know, I'm a big believer in the power of positive intention, and, and that's what prayer is to me. And it really, you know, as he said, for me, it was, you know, surrendering without giving up and and kind of calling upon a force beyond myself to to sort of help me out when I had no control. You know, you both written an incredible book together, and I'm wondering uh, mm-hmm. what what you see in your future as writers, as mm-hmm. reporters, mm-hmm. as art directors. I mean, mm-hmm. this yeah. must have just thrown everything up in the air. <laughs> <It did. laughs> well, for me, my days as a war correspondent are over. Um, I decided that about 30 <laughs> seconds into the kidnapping, and I'm uh, just elated to be home. I'm still working as a journalist. I'm yeah. an investigative reporter back at my old job, but I won't be, you know, reporting in, in conflict zones anymore. Yeah. And I had taken time time away from my day job to write the book with David, and, and really just to have time mm-hmm. with him after he got out. Um, and I, I, it was it was 
enjoyable writing. It was tough at times, too. But uh, I, I loved um, being able to have that time to each reflect and, and give voice to our experience. And hopefully um, it, it will go beyond us. You know, it'll comfort people in a situation of uncertainty. Uh, you know, maybe someone who's making life and death decisions for a partner um, or anybody dealing with something beyond their control. You know, so it's, it's kind of nice to, to sort of put the story out there and then hope it sort of takes on a, a life or inspires other people too. All this and, and the most cracking, exciting adventure <laughs> I've almost wow. read this year. And, and I think it, it, it gives that urgency to mm -hmm. these important themes as well. Mm -hmm. and, and I mean, gosh, trying to escape, <laughs> talking to the FBI. I mean, yeah. that's, that's really just in, an incredibly brave on both your parts. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Thanks very much. Yeah. I've been speaking with David Rode and Kristen Mulvihill. Their new book is A Rope and a Prayer. Thank you for joining me, David and Kristen. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.